Tinakwea, Nalmai, Heidi Mai, welcome to Animal Matters Safe's fortnightly podcast. As always, with myself, Will Appleby, and Courtney White. Kia Courtney. How are you this week? Kia Will. I'm good. How are you? I'm not too bad. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely not counting down the weeks until the end of the year. Um, I'm looking forward to a break. You're not. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. It was supposed to be sarcastic, oh but it probably didn't come across as. <laughs> you said it so straight faced that I was shocked because I was about to say, I am. I can't wait for Christmas. I need a break. I need a rest. Well, we've got one more episode before um, the end of the year, I think. That's true. So we don't need to get too Christmassy right now. No, we don't. It's only just. It's only just gone December. Oh, but I'll tell you what. I've got my tree up. Yeah, I. Our place is too small to have a proper tree, and it kind of makes me sad. So we have to. We have to find like a small tabletop tree. Yeah. Do you have a real tree or is it a fake Christmas tree? Sadly, it's fake, but it does mean that I can just bring it out every year. I don't have to cut down a tree every year. That's sort of what I'm trying to justify it because I do love the smell mm. of a, an actual Christmas tree. But I don't know. What do you think's better in terms of um, being sustainable? Oh, well, I mean, I was just thinking I wouldn't have a clue, to be honest, which is more sustainable. Um, I mean, pines aren't exactly great for biodiversity, I don't think. But then there's possibly waste in a... I don't know. I honestly have no I idea. I don't know. Um, I know which one makes makes less mess. This is true. The smell from a real tree is is fantastic. We always used to have a real tree when we were kids. But same. Yeah, I don't know. Some whoever's listening who knows the answer to this, let us know which is more sustainable: a real tree or a fake tree. <laughs> I do miss that smell though. We did always used to have them when I was um, a little kid, but I do also kind of like the way that the fake ones look because they're so perfect. That's true. They do look much more perfect. Um, There's a lot that's been coming out of the vegan society recently. They've done two studies. Well, the vegan society have been doing a couple of things in recent weeks because it's been World Vegan Month. So November, World Vegan Month. Really interesting to see what how people are kind of marking the occasion, really. Um, some people have been cooking really exciting vegan food. Some people have been signing our petitions, which has been really good. But the Vegan Society have been doing a lot of studies, which is really, really cool. And I found two that I really liked the look of, and I was going to talk to you about them today. So the first one, um, the Vegan Society did an online survey Uh, And it came out sort of mid-November. And what they found was almost half of non-vegans, so this is people who don't identify as vegan at all, they agree that farmed animals can experience similar emotions to animal companions. So that's, um, you know, cows, pigs, chickens. They accept that they can experience similar emotions to dogs and cats, which is pretty remarkable because that's one of the things that often comes up for for people, that there's a cognitive dissonance that people will, I guess, be happy to accept because if you can say that um, a cow doesn't feel the same emotions as a dog, then it makes it a little bit easier to eat them. Yeah, I'm... I have to say I'm a little bit surprised by the survey that there are so many people, at least in the UK, who uh, agree to some extent that farmed animals experience similar emotions to, to companion animals. Because so often people consider 
companion animals is completely different. I mean, we definitely, most people treat them completely differently. Most people would be appalled by the idea of consuming a cat or a dog, but happy to to, to eat cows and chickens. So, um, yeah, as you say, it's a, it's a good example of that cognitive dissonance in play. People, I guess, recognize that logically, I suppose, that they do share similar experiences, but- they haven't gone that extra step like you and I have. It's funny, isn't it? So, yeah, the, the, almost half of them agreed, and then 42% said they somewhat agreed. So, we'll take that as a slight agreement. So, all up, if you put those together, that's 90% of them. And admittedly, these are um, Brits, but I would say it'd be pretty similar here. Um, but th- I, that's huge. Like, to me, I was really, really surprised that there's so many people who even slightly agree um, that dogs and cats and cows and chickens are pretty similar in terms of how they feel and think and behave. Um, and so it is that really interesting thing that there's then that extra step to say, well, then I, I suppose it would make sense, it would follow that I probably shouldn't eat them or I probably shouldn't um, have them in cages. I probably shouldn't have them, you know, in, in pens because I wouldn't do that to a dog. And most people wouldn't do it to a dog. Admittedly, that, that is a very Western way of thinking. But, yeah, I, I think that's really interesting what that next little step is then. Yeah, I, I, I wonder because this survey specifically says farmed animals – So, I'm assuming pigs, sheep, cows, chickens. I wonder whether the statistics would be the same if it included fishes. Yeah, yeah. Because people tend to have more of a disassociation from fishes because, um, well, a lot of people just think that fishes don't feel pain, which is not true (laughs) like false it's such an interesting thing though and i wonder because as as sort of dark as this is to say you know when a dog's in pain most of the time because they'll make a sound that we can recognize as something that is them vocalizing that they're in pain or they're in distress or they will act in a way or look in a way that we can recognize that and we can do that with cows and pigs and and chickens as well because they will vocalize but a fish can't do that and i wonder if that's potentially something you know it's these markers that we can recognize yeah that's right Uh, yeah and i suppose if there are markers um if if fishes do have those have markers for when they're in pain uh it's probably not ones that we can understand but then i guess you know, a lot of the, some of the animals that we that we raise for food are prey animals, which are really good at hiding when they're in pain as well. Whereas predators like cats and dogs are uh, uh, less so. They'll they'll tend to display when they when they're feeling when they're in pain more. Um, Except sometimes they'll just slink off and go and try and hide. That's true. In a bush, my dog used to do that all the time. He was he had diabetes, oh. and when. He would get a bit low on insulin. He would just go and hide in a bush, which meant that it was really hard to find him. So, we'd <laughs> it would just get worse and worse. So, we'd have to go and try and find him and inject him with his insulin. But, yeah, I agree. It's, it's an interesting thing to sort of ponder in terms of how then we get around that as activists. How do we try and speak to people on that level about how fish, for example, sentience works or 
how they feel when it's so unknowable. And the the common argument, I think that's, and I've used this argument a lot, and, and, and when referring to rodeo um, events, for example, is the things that we do to animals and rodeo events, we wouldn't do them to their cats and to our cats and dogs. Like we just we just wouldn't. So why is it okay to do it to these animals? I find that argument a lot less compelling for people when you're talking about um, food, um, because people just consider cats and dogs as different because society has agreed that we have a relationship with these kinds of animals and not with other kinds of animals. And also that one is a funny one, isn't it? Because I suppose there really isn't an argument that I've ever heard that's compelling about things like rodeo being a necessity, a life necessity. So yeah, you would never treat your dog. If you did, you would be held up. That would be um, a, 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 Conviction, I would assume, if you're going to treat your dog in that way, if you saw somebody treating their dog in that way on the street with electric prods and all of that included. But there is an argument that some people have and believe for using animals for food, even though there's so many alternatives. Um, so that's an interesting one as well, because yes, you wouldn't eat a dog, but people would eat a cow because it's yeah. just how it's always been. Yeah, totally. And it's and as you say, it's that, that argument around sustenance, I suppose. A little bit of a, a deeper question for you is, and I've been wondering this, because a lot of the time, you know, activists will say, and I say it as well, you know, that we speak for those who don't have a voice. And it's a really interesting point because, you know, if you spend any time with any animal they do have a voice and they will use that voice. It's just not one that we necessarily can understand all of the time. And if we do think we understand it, it's because we're putting it into our worldview and our frame as, as humans. And I wonder whether that's necessarily helpful when it comes to the conversation that we're having here, because when you do frame it in that way, um, it does mean that you need to then try and bring all these different species into a frame that we then understand using our human brain. So bringing them in and going, how similar are they to us? How much do they look like us? How much do they sound like us? How much do they feel like us? Rather than just being able to accept them on their own, in their own frame, I suppose, in their their own way of living, um, which isn't like us. It doesn't have to be like us to be worthwhile, what do you think about that? I, I think I, I think I get your point. It's kind of the way that we frame the experiences of these animals. It's kind of anthropomorphism, isn't it? We're putting them in. This is getting really deep to help other people understand the experiences of these animals. The, the common tactic that many animal rights activists has used is to demonstrate how similar they are to humans. Because I suppose if you see another human in pain, we are likely to want to help them because we have empathy for them whereas a lot of people don't have any, much empathy at all for animals so i guess that tactic that we've been using is to try and demonstrate how similar we are to them but then yeah is the question is is that the right way to do it or is it better to demonstrate how they have their own inherent value um that is their own and that's their individual it's an interesting topic I don't know the answer. <laughs> no, neither. It's it's really hard. And it's, you know, I suppose it's one of those things that keeps raging on 
um, even outside of animal rights, it's sort of something that feminism grapples with as well, you know, when it comes down to conversations about whether we ask, as women, we ask for value because we are like men and we can do all the same things that men can do or do we say we are inherently different and I don't have the answer for that either because then we also get into you know all these things about transgender and and it's a huge big topic but in the same sense you know it's that conversation whether we can as people if we're ready to just accept beings on the basis of them being themselves <laughs> and that be it and be able to value something or someone that we don't understand and we don't need to that has got very deep i'm sorry well that was it's too early for this that's all right um i just had a thought and it's maybe it's something that we're just humans are just good at doing which is anthropomorph- anthropomorphizing and yeah. because i mean I talk to my cat like he's a baby, (laughs) even though he's not. He's a completely different species and he has no idea what I'm saying, likely. I mean, he probably understands that I care for him. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a weird one, right? And we do this for, with all of our companion animals. Maybe it's just something that we're good at doing, which is trying to project our experiences onto other animals. And that is just how we've ended up as animal rights activists to try and give animals that are exploited that voice, those similar behaviors that we use for our companion animals. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a funny one. I just have one more thing to say on this because I remember a, a long time ago when I was studying psychology, there was a little story or analogy that kind of really resonated with me and it sort of, it fits here and I can't remember who it was from and I can't remember the, the ins and outs of it. So I'll just give you like a very rudimentary form of it. But it was basically saying, you know, if you judge uh, a bunch of different species based on something that's quite arbitrary. So, for example, how we kind of go, you know, how similar are they to us? How do they feel like us? Can they use tools? You know, what is a human essentially? And then judge every other species by that and then have them on a hierarchy of how much we would afford them. Um, it's very similar to say if you go, okay, well, the the way that we're going to value animals is by who can climb a tree the fastest. And you put a monkey next to a fish, next to a dog, next to a cat, next to a, a human and just judge them in that arbitrary way, right? And so, of course, you're going to say, well, the fish is useless, Um, because it doesn't have arms so it's not going to be climbing that tree and monkey's amazing so we're going to value that it's arbitrary it's all arbitrary Um, and so I think yeah that's just a really interesting way of thinking about it in terms of who decides you know we are looking at this through such a human lens Mm -hmm. that when we we decide who is deserving of rights based on our worldview it's just so reductive and it just it's just an interesting thing to think about how we can mm. start to reframe that, I guess. Yeah, totally. Totally. But to, to bring it back a little bit so that we can have a bit of a light conversation, because I know in the last couple of episodes it's been pretty dark. Um, the other thing that the Vegan Society did this this month, or last month, I should say, in November, um, was another research project that analysed the use of the word vegan and the word plant-based and how their usage might impact the overall vegan cause, I suppose. And again, this is um, based in the UK market, but what they did was they had a look at consumer attitudes towards using the term plant-based, which is starting to be used a lot more on food. 
um, and vegan terminology. Um, there was, they did this in 2020 as well, um, and they found that there was about a 50-50 split between people preferring the term vegan and those who preferred to um, use the term plant-based. And this year, it expanded out a little bit more on it. Um, but it, they found a pretty similar thing, and I, I was just really interested in that because I have my thoughts on what I would prefer to be, which phrase I'd prefer people to use about me and also I suppose what other people have told me they would prefer and their reasons for it so I'm interested to hear what you have to say on this what if someone was talking about you or, or you were referring to yourself which would you go for I would refer to myself as vegan but if someone referred to me like if someone introduced me to someone else and said oh this is Will he's plant-based I'm probably not going to correct them, but I wouldn't say that I eat a plant-based diet. I would say that I eat a vegan diet. But the diet, I mean, this is where it gets interesting because plant-based is generally, it's referring specifically to the diet. You're eating food made from plants, whereas to be vegan is generally considered to be a more holistic lifestyle where you are opposed to the exploitation of animals and part of your praxis is is to eat a plant-based diet. And it's not surprising that plant-based has become more popular, uh, the term, because many people are eating plant-based diets for reasons that have very little to do with animal rights, for health reasons, for environmental reasons, and for whatever reason they want to avoid that politically charged term vegan which i thought i found really funny reading this this article was when they described the the history behind the term vegan and it says here that dr campbell in the 1980s felt the need to come up with objective scientifically valid phrase to describe a diet with no animal products but one which avoided the controversy or charged atmosphere of the term vegetarian. Oh, how things have changed. <laughs> <laughs> right. A lot. I mean, in 40 years, is plant-based going to be a politically charged term? I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was quite funny um, because, yeah, the, the, the term vegan is, it's become gatekept a lot, either rightly or wrongly, it is gatekept. I don't tend to overtly gatekeep it, but if people ask me what's the difference between vegan and plant-based, I'll explain to them what the difference is with the caveat that I am a vegan, you know. But I guess the premise of this this survey, right, is to try and understand, is it better or is it better to be using plant-based and or vegan, which is going to have the bigger impact? And is it... I, I always find this a really interesting discussion because plant-based seems like a less um, controversial um, lifestyle. Maybe it's easier for normies to access um, than, than, than vegan is. But then the counter-argument is that plant-based is just a diet. It's not necessarily recognising that animals should have rights and should not be exploited. It's, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because... I mean, they're not wrong in saying that plant-based is currently less politically charged, right? It's not. It's not. Um, there's a lot that goes along with vegan, rightly or wrongly. I think, you know, when, when you talk about, it's happened to me, it happens all the time. When I talk about being vegan, people go, 
oh, <laughs> you know, like they're expecting you to kind of come out with this really aggressive campaign and you sometimes want to, but at the same time, you do have to be aware that there is something that people already have in their mind when you use the word vegan that, that just conjures something up for them. With plant-based, it's a lot more um, settled. And I think what they're saying in this article as well is, you know, people are concerned that the term vegan seems ex one ex more exclusive so it's like a little club and also unyielding to those considering a more gradual journey. So that's the thing. But when we're talking about a gradual journey, what we're talking about with plant-based, like you say, is a gradual journey towards a vegan diet. So it's a totally different thing because if you think about what the actual um, accepted definition from the vegan society of veganism is, it isn't a plant-based diet. What it is is a philosophy and a way of living which, and I'll quote this here, seeks to exclude as far as is possible and practicable all forms of exploitation of and cruelty to animals for food, clothing, or any other purpose, and by extension, promotes the development and use of animal-free alternatives for the benefit of animals, humans, and the environment. So that is much more wide-ranging than just a diet. And in, in practical terms, in terms of like actually um, having this play out in my life, there was a, a time that this came to the fore really strongly because I've been outspokenly vegan for I think 12 years now. And so when I was traveling, everybody kind of knew, you know, that I wouldn't be eating certain things. Um, but the, then everything else around that was kind of up for negotiation. So for example, we were in Greece and there's a place that you can go where you can ride donkeys and they take you up this very steep hill, these tiny little donkeys, and you can put all your bags on them and they'll carry you up. And so for me, that was a very clear exploitation that I wouldn't partake in and I didn't want to ride that donkey. And everybody was so confused and I was like, but, but I'm vegan and I, this is what I think and, and how I would like to interact with the world. And they were just like, yeah, but you're not eating the donkey, you know? So there's that kind of confusion about it as well. Yeah, totally. Uh, it's, you know, you could be eating a plant-based diet, but still wear clothes made from wool and leather and still ride horses, which are still all forms of exploitation, essentially. And that descriptor that you read out from the vegan society, which is much better than my one, is it's all encompassing, right? That's the that's the idea. And there's a question here whether the use of the term plant based is to benefit the rights of animals or to advocate for plant based diets um, as a animal rights tactic. Is that the way to go? Because it turns the 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 struggle, I suppose, or the the mission to to end the exploitation of animals into a very friendly sort of consumer choice argument, or instead of a this is how I need to live my life, which is in accordance with vegan values. Therefore, um, it's not just about you know choosing not to to eat meat and dairy. It's also uh, choosing to avoid. All of those other activities that might exploit animals, whether they are, you know, riding horses or donkeys or participating in entertainment where animals might be used um, or wearing clothes that that might have um, that might come from animals. But on the flip side, I do think that um, vegans collectively can be a bit exclusionary. And that is a problem. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. I actually um, have done a bit of writing around this. Um 
in terms of, and I, I call it um, the sort of the search for purity and perfectionism. And I think I get it. I understand where it came from and where it comes from for people because I've been like this as well, especially when I was first vegan, is because, well, I'll talk about just from my perspective. When I first went vegan, I had a lot of guilt um, about what I had done previously. I also felt a lot of anger. I was so angry um, because all of a sudden when you can see just how unjust the world is, it's so tough to see other people not being vegan, even though you've just gone vegan. So you've got a lot of anger and you just, you're not, you can't, well, I couldn't break through with a lot of people um, that go, oh, that's great for you, you know, but I'm still going to have my roast on a Sunday and I'd be like banging my head against the wall going, but can't you see, you know? And so I suppose for me, in a way of assuaging that kind of guilt and anger, being really rigid and really perfect about my vegan diet and the way that I was living, it kind of was a way to separate myself from those feelings. It was kind of going, I'm doing the best thing that I can. And so I don't need to feel like that anymore. Yeah. It was a protection thing for me, I think. Yeah, totally. And I think I think a lot of people experience that. Um, you mentioned anger. You know, there's a reason why the, the stereotype, I think, of the angry vegan exists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and perhaps that is something we need to be mindful of that um, whilst we are striving for a better world um, and the status quo is so unjust, is there ways we can better bring people along on the journey? And maybe that is, maybe that is, um, you know, being more accepting of the word plant-based. I don't know. I don't know if that's, it's such an interesting conversation to see where that's going to go because I don't know whether you know, saying absolutely I'm plant-based um, waters down the political, you know, the bits that go around veganism, which we're talking about, which isn't just about a diet. I don't know whether that waters it down or whether it makes it more accessible. I oscillate all the time, but I would call myself a vegan 100%. But then I suppose potentially, you know, opening the door for people because this is actually a point that if people do walk through that door even a little bit using the word plant-based or using the word vegetarian or even just partaking in veganuary right we know that psychologically people are more likely to be open then to to hearing more about veganism as a whole or animal rights or the environment um impacts that that diet and and other ways of living can have it's easier to get over that little first hump of cognitive dissonance by allowing people on their own journey so there is that argument as well well you, did you go on a journey or did you go cold turkey vegan i went cold turkey vegan which is not very common i a little bit of both when i went vegan it was cold turkey 100 percent um, it was after watching Earthlings, that documentary, which was <laughs> so traumatic. Um, but in my childhood, I went vegetarian a lot. Um, but I had no idea. I grew up like in the, the bottom of the South Island where, you know, everyone was farmers and we would have field days and like everything was very agricultural. And so I don't know how it happened because no one ever talked to me about uh, animal sentience or, you know, anything like that. I just realized, I remember looking 
at a lamb and just being like, oh my God, that's what's on the plate tonight for dinner and going, no, 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 no. I don't want that um, ever again. But I would go just absolutely meat free. And because that was what was on the plate, I would just eat the vegetables around it and get very anemic. So I had no idea how to do it. So that didn't work. But when I finally watched Earthlings, I was like, aha, there's a, there's something else there. You know, you've got to replace it with something. And there is a way of doing this in a healthy way. Let's do it. It happened. Yeah. So it was a bit of a journey, but technically going vegan was cold turkey. What was what happened to you? My diet was completely cold turkey. Um, I need to th- We need to think of a better term than cold turkey anyway. Oh, yeah, I <laughs> do. But like mentally, I'd gotten to a point where I was basically on board with the idea of being vegan. I just hadn't done it because of reasons. Um, I had lots of friends who were vegan and quite often I would, if there was ever a debate amongst vegan versus non-vegan, I'd normally side with the vegan and say, this guy's right. Um, I'm a hypocrite, but they're right. And then I watched Earthlings and I thought, okay, I'm not going to be a hypocrite anymore. Um, yeah, that's good of you to be able to admit that. A lot of people can't do that. I struggled with that because it's so much easier just to go into that sort of cognitive dissonance space where you go, no, no, like this is right. This is what my family does. This is what society does. This is what we do in New Zealand. You know, it's just a thing. Um, so good on you for being able to do that. I remember also having a conversation with um, someone who I was close with at the time, not so much anymore, um, but they had said to me, and this actually did flick on a, a light, I think, that was another little step towards going vegan without necessarily recognizing it. And they said to me, you know, if you are going to eat, they ate meat every day, but if they said to me, if you are going to eat meat, then you should probably be able to slaughter that animal yourself and I was like (laughs) that's horrific like I don't even want to think about that I could never do that I couldn't stand next to a living animal like a sheep or a pig or a cow or I could not do that couldn't hold the weapon um and that kind of made me go oh oh maybe there is something here that I need to have another think about Um, Because there's no way, there's not a chance that I could kill an animal. Just couldn't do it. Yeah. Unfortunately, I did a lot of fishing in my youth. So. um, Oh, yeah. Well, see, that's another thing because I've seen, although that was tough, but I have seen fish, um, you know, die. And it is somehow, it it does feel different than seeing a, a cow die again, again, we're back here. We ha- yeah, we've gone we've gone completely full circle. Look, should we move on to animals and entertainment? It's not strictly a vegan subject, but it's important to note because there's another report on greyhound racing. It's the fourth report, Courtney, in 10 years. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't realise this until, um, I mean, I saw the report when it came out on, on Friday last week. So this report was from the select committee, the petition select committee, because they were considering considering Greyhound Protection League's petition to ban Greyhound Racing, which Safer had supported. And uh, I think it was over 34,000 signatures. So, uh, but it was only until it was discussed in the media just this week that um, I realized, oh, wow, this is the fourth report, isn't it? There'd been three others uh, beforehand. And it's damning. Um, There was, SAFE had made a submission on it. The SBCA had made a submission on it. Of course, Greyhound Protection League 
uh, made a submission on it because it was their petition, um, as well as the Racing Integrity Board, the Department of Internal Affairs, and Greyhound Racing New Zealand, and I think maybe one or two other organisations. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, the recommendations were pretty spicy. And I want to read out just a couple of them. So at the end of the report, they say, well, there's a lot in it and it's not a huge report. I encourage you to go read it because it is really interesting. It's a good encapsulation of all the issues that the likes of SAFE and SPCA and others have, and Greyhound Protection League have raised. But the, the, the recommendations at the end, they state, we have doubts about whether the greyhound racing industry still has a social license to operate in its current form. We have serious concerns about the way the industry is operating at present. We urge the government to be mindful of our comments when it considers the future of the greyhound racing industry following the Racing Integrity Board's report in December 2022. So this select committee, it's a cross party. So there was three Labour MPs on the on the committee. There was two national MPs, one ACT MP and one Green MP. Now I was I was curious uh, when this report came out whether there would be a, a dissenting opinion in the in the report. That basically means if the committee can't all agree on the report, um, then the minority review will have their take in it. That didn't happen. So the entire committee had agreed on this report and it's and they didn't, you know, pull any punches. Another point was incredibly critical of Greyhound Racing New Zealand because they had excluded the SBCA from the Health and Welfare Committee. Um, so the report also says, in our view, the removal of the SBCA from the Health and Welfare Committee shows poor judgment of what is needed for the industry to keep its license to operate. Shutting out an organisation that, while it opposes Greyhound Racing New Zealand's work, is prepared to help it improve its practices, has worked against the industry. Also, similarly, we consider the Greyhound Racing New Zealand comments that methamphetamine may have accidentally contaminated dogs to be disingenuous at best. Wow. It, it indicated a disregard for a real health and welfare problem. A more appropriate response would have been to immediately acknowledge and investigate the problem. Whoa, 100%, but that's really surprising to hear that from, yeah, the select committee. Wow. And it it makes me really happy that they've called Greyhound Racing New Zealand out on this because the amount of articles, the amount of stories where dogs have tested positive for methamphetamine and we've seen the same lines from Greyhound Racing New Zealand that it's accidental contamination. Um, I, I remember even in one interview, the CEO said that because methamphetamine is a society-wide problem in New Zealand, that all dogs are at risk of methamphetamine contamination. Like, it boggles belief, <laughs> yeah. the the men- mental gymnastics these people go through. Um, so, it was very satisfying to see the select committee basically call them out on that rubbish. Yeah, 100%. And it's also really, really good to hear them, you know, talking about things that are more than just injuries. Because... You know, the injury rates are atrocious. Um, I think something like 40% of greyhounds received injuries just this last season. I think that's right. Um, So almost half of them are being injured. But, you know, there's much more to this industry that there are issues around. Like you've just talked about with methamphetamine. Um, 
than just the injuries because that's that's the slight concern that I have in, in reading very briefly this report. And you've mentioned it where, you know, they have doubts as to whether the industry holds its social license that it requires to operate in its current form. That is the little piece that I'm just thinking, oh, that's an out potentially that I really hope that they don't take. Well, that's 100% right. I mean, Kieran McAnulty, we we talked about it on the the last episode. He has made it clear that um, the status quo will not continue. Mm. Um, that is not an option. So it's either reform of the industry or complete closure. Yeah. Um, and it is just a wait and see at the moment. Um, he was interviewed on Today FM earlier this week, and he basically said that he's expecting the report from the Racing Integrity Board. Within a couple of days, mm. um, he may even have it now, um, and then. Sometime within the first couple of months of the new year, um, my best guess it might be February because that's when Parliament is should be sitting again. Maybe February or March, there'll be an announcement. Um, well, the process. No, he has to come. He has to come up with what his recommendation to cabinet will be, and then cabinet will decide what the outcome will be, whether it's reform or closure. Um, so, yeah, that, that point you, that you raised, though, the ability to maintain that social license, it's, that's and potentially an out for the industry. But it could also be that, you know, the, the, the government may say, well, these are the reforms that the industry needs to make. And the industry may turn around and say, we can't do that, um, in which case they will be risking closure. So there's a couple of scenarios that could play out in the next couple of months. Um, I'm getting impatient. I just want it to. I just want it to end. <laughs> I know. I know. Same. I'm just. Yeah. Let's hope. I mean, I just. I don't understand how much more information needs to come out about every single aspect of this industry. Yeah. That would mean that it's closed. I cannot see, and I know that I'm biased, <laughs> but I cannot see a way that this industry can operate um you know humanely mm. it, I, I don't i don't see it i don't the, the 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 political aspect of this though is quite interesting because there is the um the technocratic side of it right where the racing integrity board whoa what <laughs> word was that the technocratic side of it i've never heard that word in my life what does it mean so um it, it, uh, this is getting really complicated. Um, a, a technocrat is um, someone who has expertise in a specific area um, and will recommend outcomes based upon that expertise. And they tend to ignore whatever the, the, the politics of it might be. For example, um, the... The, the governor of the Reserve Bank is a technocrat. Okay. He is an economist and he raises and lowers interest rates based upon the, um, the economy of the day. It doesn't matter whether raising interest rates might cause political problems because um, it's unpopular or people don't like interest rates going up. But he does it anyway because that's... <laughs> Gotcha. So that's 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 what a technocrat is. So um, the technocratic aspect of this decision might be: well, the greyhound racing industry can make improvements if they do this and this and this and this. But if greyhound racing is allowed to continue, will that be a popular decision or will that be an unpopular decision? And that's where the politics comes into it. Whether the Labour Party 
will be willing to to wear that decision you know um we've got an election coming up next year and it will be interesting i mean we won't ultimately know whether their decision is is because of politics or because of evidence but that is the other side of it that if the the public no longer support greyhound racing at all whether the labor party will want to allow it to continue because it might damage their their political chances at the election Mm. yep it's a weird one because new zealand's one of the only countries there's not many in the world Mm. who still have legal greyhound racing like we're already an outlier here um it's it's going down in popularity across the world it's going down in popularity here it just seems so odd to sort of grasp onto it and go we can make it better when really I feel like the writing's on the wall. I think, yeah, I mean, it seems like it is. Um, It should be. Um, It's, yeah, the question is whether or not, I see it as very much a political thing at the moment. Um, It's whether or not the the Labour Party wants to, because you're going to piss off people on either side. You're either going to piss off the racing industry or you're going to piss off people who care about animals. Mm. Um, And I guess it's which group is more important, I suppose. Do enough people care um, enough about the the animals and and just want to see the industry closed or is it going to cause too many problems for them to, to close the industry live export was a bigger industry and they closed they, they, they shut that down so mm. um, it should be in a reasonably easy decision in my view yeah but we just have to wait and see speaking of um, live export have you heard have you heard the the latest stats on that one? I have. I've seen a couple of the headlines. Um, I the, I knew the trends were heading in this way because the the numbers of animals we've been exporting grew last year compared to the year before and compared to the year before that, and it, it, it appears to be the same this year. Isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, I, I it's really disappointing because it's one of those things. You know, there, there's a two year wind down. Everybody listening will probably know this already but um so it's supposed to be phased out by april next year which is not far away now um but what's actually happened is last year i think something like 1000 no 134,722 cattle were exported and so far we're already almost at 100,000 and we've got you know five more shipments that have been um approved which is Huge. So that's going to be more than last year. And it means that we're going up rather than phasing out. So it's a funny thing to call it a phase out because um, that's not what's happening at all. Um, and I think it's, it's a really interesting point to talk about um, because the, the conversation that's being had at the moment is that the problem with banning it here um, for animal rights or animal welfare reasons is that New Zealand can, and I'm, I'm, I know you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes, New Zealand can provide gold standard welfare on these ships. And, you know, if we ban it, then it will go to other countries who may not provide that gold standard welfare. And I think that's where my massive concern comes in because when we talk about the ship and the conditions on the ship and the injuries and the deaths on the ship as the be all and end all or the deciding factor. It's horrific. Do not get me wrong. But we're also um, t- 
totally discounting what happens to those animals when they reach the shore. So it doesn't matter um, at the end of the day how good your welfare is when it comes to just leaving those animals there in countries with potentially no animal welfare laws whatsoever. I think discounting that from the conversation and just talking about the ship, um, we run into real issues. Yeah, you're totally right. And SAFE has always tried to, to, to focus on this issue. Before the government announced a ban on, on, on live export by sea, SAFE had delivered a petition to Parliament which called for a ban on the export of all animals to countries with lower standards of animal welfare for two reasons. One, it's not just animals sent overseas by ship that we wanted to ban, um, but also by plane, which is going to be allowed to continue. But also, all of the countries that we send, that we export animals to, do have lower standards of animal welfare compared to New Zealand. And in those countries, these animals can be slaughtered or could be slaughtered by means that would be deemed too cruel to be legal in New Zealand. And then obviously the the sinking of the Gulf livestock happened and when the government did ban live export, by at least by sea, they very much pinned it on the journey as being the issue, um, which is why they were not banning live export by by air freight because the government doesn't consider it a problem once they, they arrive in, in these destination countries, which is frustrating because it is a problem um, and, and it is one that's just been constantly forgotten. And it's allowed, it's actually created this environment for the opposition, the National Party and the ACT Party to talk up this gold standard you know so actually it's a little it may be a little bit backfired on the labor party that they've focused so much on the journey that it's allowed the the opposition to go okay we'll we'll have purpose-built ships that are brand new and we'll have all of these rules and regulations that will improve the journey perhaps if the labor party had focused on the destination um that would have neutered that argument a little bit but then they would be compelled to ban live export by air freight as well which of course they should but it's probably more of a headache for the government because it's millions of animals compared to hundreds of thousands that get exported by sea it's mind-boggling it, you pull one thread and everything else you know moves um it's so it's it's a really really tough thing to talk about but i'll be honest i didn't even know that we exported animals by air it seems that seems way out the gate to me um you know especially when you're looking at the kind of animals that are being transported by air like day old chicks um eels like all of these sorts of animals that you're just like what i didn't even know they were being exported and i think this is another thing is this needs to be talked about even more. I know now um, sort of it's being talked about a little bit more uh, in the media and things, but oftentimes when we think about exporting, it is on a ship and it is cows, and that's important that we know about those things, but there's so much more to this. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's live export by sea has been controversial for a long time, for decades, yeah. for various reasons. So it's, it's, it's been in the public consciousness, whereas... Yeah, just live export by air freight. No one knows that it, it, it occurs. I was the same. I had no idea that it happened um, before I started working at SAFE. And it's been a challenge to put that one on the radar. 
Courtney, last episode, we promised to have um, a slightly happier ending. Oh my God. You sprang that on me. That I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, you're right. We did say that, but I've forgotten. Um, I don't think we need to have anything. Okay. All right. You're just going to call me out and let me just go then. That's fine. No, 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 no. <laughs> All right. What about this? I'm going to put this on the agenda for next time. Next time we have to end positively, Will, because it's Christmas. Thank you for listening to Animal Matters. This podcast is brought to you by Safe for Animals, Aotearoa's leading animal rights organisation. We release new episodes every fortnight, so make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or whatever your favourite podcast platform is. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at safe.org.nz forward slash animal matters. If you're listening on Apple or Spotify, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners to find the show. Until next time, Matewa. Wa.